Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, coming to you from two SER studios in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. Broadcast right around Australia on the Community Radio Network and around the world, wherever you get your podcasts. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. Issues of corruption and integrity have affected Australian democracy in a variety of ways throughout history. Most recently, things like sports rorts, lobby group revolving doors, pork barrelling and political donations have undermined transparency and have eroded public trust in elected officials. Despite our states and many OECD countries having robust anti-corruption commissions, Australia still lacks a federal body to keep our politicians honest. With an election looming, the issue of a National Corruption Commission is once again on the table, with the government, the ALP, the Greens and Independents all putting forward their plan to clean up politics. On today's show, we're exploring what corruption looks like in Australia, how it intersects with the private sector and what is needed to deliver real change. I'm joined in the studio by Marie Delarama, lecturer at the University of Technology Sydney Business School, and remotely by Adam Graycar, Professor of Public Policy and Director of the Stretton Institute at the University of Adelaide. Marie, Adam, welcome to Think Business Futures. Thank you for having us. Glad to be here. Now, Marie, we're here to talk about political corruption in Australia and how it intersects with the private sector, as well as the broader landscape of corruption in the international community. Tell us about what we mean by this type of corruption in the federal political context of Australia. And let's start by talking about some of the ways that it manifests here. Okay, look, at its very basic, you know, corruption involves the misuse of public position for private gain. So if you're a publicly elected or a publicly appointed official, if you use your public position for private interest or private gain or self-interest, then there is a whiff of corruption there. And it's all obviously involves the extent of how much um, interest is gained outside the public sphere. And this is where I'd like to talk about integrity, which is the opposite of corruption. So integrity is the appropriate use of public power for public ends. In the federal landscape, we have been discussing in, in civil society for the last 10 or odd years about establishing a federal anti-corruption commission. And we are we are yet to receive a federal anti-corruption commission, although in the last federal election in 2019, we were promised one. So since that, we do have uh, three bills that were presented in the last parliament, the government's Commonwealth Integrity Commission Bill of 2020, uh, which uh, I was part of a civil society consultation roundtable and uh, it was roundly criticised. So there was also the um, the Greens uh, National Integrity Commission and finally Helen Haynes Anti-Corruption Commission. So an anti-corruption agency, we have them on the state level, uh, so we're trying to get them on the federal level just because we do have uh, these three tiers of government here in Australia. Okay, we will be talking about the potential implementation of a federal anti-corruption commission of one kind or another. But to continue laying some groundwork, Adam, on a federal level here in Australia, what types of corruption or what types of sort of self-interested decision-making do we see? First of all, the most important thing to remember is Australia is a low-corruption country. We don't have a lot of corruption 
in the traditional sense. And that means that citizens can go about their daily lives without uh, being shaken down by public servants, without being asked for a bribe to get this particular document or that particular document or arbitrarily uh, arrested by a police officer and uh, have to buy their way out or have to pay a crooked judge to get you out. We're not like that. However, when Marie talked about integrity, she hit the nail absolutely on the head. What we've seen is a significant decline in integrity in recent years. Corruption has also increased in the difficult ways of measuring it. There's a global measure called the Corruption Perceptions Index, and Australia, for the first 20 years of this index, ranked in the top 10 least corrupt mm. countries. In the last decade, it has slipped from 7th to 18th. Now, our federal government says, look, 18th isn't bad. You know, there are 180 there. We're not Somalia. We're not Ethiopia. But the point is we've slipped enormously compared to countries like Finland, like Denmark, like New Zealand, like Norway, etc. And we should aspire to be up there. And where we've slipped in the perception is in the way integrity has not been shown through wheeling and dealing and buying access and looking after mates. That's the sort of corruption that we have. And corruption in rich countries is not about a low-paid public servant saying, I won't give you your driver's license unless you give me $10. It's about looking after looking after uh, friends, uh, cronies, business partners. It's about the buying of access. Okay. Um, Marie, let's let's get into some examples. I think that um, you know there's been a bunch of things during this this government uh, this government's tenure that have been brought to light. Uh, the things that I, I think about are sports rorts, car park rorts, uh, you know political donations, lobbying, revolving door, that sort of thing. And I'd like to get into some of that. So why don't we start with political donations, because I think that this is pretty intricately linked to the private sector. Currently, there is no amount, no limit to the amount a private company can donate to a political party. Uh, and as long as it amounts to over $13,000, it needs to be disclosed. Major donors are often from the banking sector, from the energy sector, mining and resources and uh, large property developers. And we see this close-knit relationship that you just alluded to then, Adam, between these types of people and organisations and political officials. Now, it seems pretty obvious to the public, you know, at face value, that huge political donations from these types of people and organisations curry favour with politicians. Am I right? Is this what these kinds of political donations are for, Marie? Yes, look, that is a major problem and it's been an increasing problem, especially as, as you pointed out correctly, you know, it's the intersection between the private sector and the public sector. It must be said there are ethical players in the private sector and uh, all kudos to them because they do not want to create any undue influence because it does come down to the ethical culture within those private sector companies. In terms of political donations here in Australia, I was looking at you know some of the published donations uh, uh, with, uh, with the Australian Electoral Commission because they do keep a database. And it, it is interesting which private se sector participants, you rightly pointed out, at, um, Stefan, about the banking sector being <laughs> such uh, big political donors. And really, the big four, all four of them, 
um, do donate politically. What was interesting to me, though, when I was looking at tracking the political donations from the banking sector was um, the former Queensland Premier, Anna Bly, when she left public office, she became CEO of the Australian Banking Association Mm. until she joined the Australian Banking Association. So the Australian Banking Association is the peak group that uh, that represents the, the, the banks and they're basically the banking lobby group. They never donated politically until Anna Bly became CEO. So you can actually see some of the changes that occur when there is a transfer, uh, when there is a change or alteration with uh, principles in lobby groups, uh, industry lobby groups especially. That's my fear. We are heading that American way where all these uh, industry lobby groups, they are just donating and donating and creating this undue influence and ultimately it undermines our democracy. Okay. Adam, I'd like to go into an example here because we're, we're sort of talking about these issues broadly, but I think there are some examples which really drive home how this affects politics and how this affects taxpayers. So I want to talk about the Western Sydney Airport deal. In 2020, it was discovered that the government spent $30 million on a parcel of land for Western Sydney Airport that was evaluated by independent assessors to be worth only about $3 million. So 10 times the the worth was was paid to the Leppington Pastoral Company, who was a large, large donor to the Liberal Party at the time. In your opinion, is this exactly what we're talking about? This clear lack of integrity mates you know, giving handoffs to mates or corruption, if you will. And also just moving on to talk about what what was put in place to try to hold the government accountable for this. In that case, the Auditor General uh, found that the process was severely lacking, found that uh, processes weren't followed, but came down with the finding that it was more likely to be incompetence on the part of public servants. The Auditor General made no finding on the politics of it. But you're right, things like this cause our standing to diminish dramatically. And uh, there there are four areas. We we can talk about examples. Marie's talked about examples in donations. That's one area, and the whole lobbying donations area. The second uh, are things like procurement, and and I've got a catalogue of procurement problems uh, that haven't gone through the right processes that have gone to people close to government. Uh, A third area is the whole area of grants, whether they're for sporting clubs or car parks. And a fourth area that uh, we haven't mentioned so far and uh, deeply undermines our integrity processes is the stacking of uh, government tribunals with uh, party apparatchiks. And this has been going on for a long time. You know, you look after your mates, you give them a job that pays three or $400,000. They don't have to do much and they may not be very well qualified for it. But they have a huge impact on the way decisions are made and the way decisions are adjudicated. So the, uh, the Western Sydney uh, airport issue, uh, yes, huge amounts of money were paid. Uh, there are a couple of other water buybacks. There's been a water buyback scheme. Uh, it's uh, the company that ended up making a huge amount of money was a company owned by the family of one of our federal ministers who had been a director but had ceased to be a director of 
that company. Uh, there was an offshore processing plant where a half a billion dollars of uh, funding was given to a company that operated out of a beach shack on Kangaroo Island and had no track record in that field. So we've got, you know, the whole area of procurement is very, very significant. But let me tell you what happens, what happens and a corruption agency may not always be able to come to uh, deal with all of these. What happens is uh, the respondents turn around and say, I haven't broken any laws. And that is usually so. They probably haven't broken any laws, but they certainly have not always acted with full integrity. Marie, considering the fact that we do not have a National Integrity Commission or Corruption Commission of any kind, what do you think that this in itself does to the culture that Adam is talking about? Do you think that politicians basically can see that there are ways to not be held accountable for these types of actions because we do not have one of these institutions in place, hence this culture just continues to perpetuate? These these forms of grey corruption do undermine, firstly, public trust and confidence. Um, it does um, allow our publicly elected officials, they understand, um, or they may not understand, since they don't have these limits, that their power in office is limitless. And that is where we are entering a culture of abuse of power or abuse of influence or uh, trading in influence, so to speak. Um, if I may bring here, for example, um, this week we've had uh, the member for Kuyong, uh, who is currently the treasurer, uh, Josh Frydenberg. Um, there has been uh, issues raised over his use of three principals, two CEOs and one founder of uh, non-profit not-for-profit organisations in his seat endorsing him or publicly endorsing him. They use their title and their organisation in his uh, electoral leaflets. And uh, that is against um, the guidance of the Australian Charities Not-for-Profits Commission. Um, Will the ACNC do something about this? I'm not sure. Uh, But we see this politicisation where our publicly elected officials are trying to suppress the institutional or undermine the institutional integrity of our public institutions and our publicly appointed officials. Unfortunately, on the federal level, we have seen the politicisation and undermining of our key integrity institutions that Adam has talked about stacking um, the appointment system. So that's a a key factor in the politicisation. It it creates, again, back to a mistrust of these institutions. So uh, do we observe the rule of law, merit-based appointments, or do we accept a rule of chaos or even a rule of kleptocracy. So so that's, you know, uh, from an academic point of view, where are we heading? Are we heading down that route where people do not trust their public institutions anymore? And and that's a slippery slip to what we have a slippery slope to what we see with other countries with grand systemic corruption. Mm. Adam I look at something like sports rorts, um, and if listeners haven't, you know, been fully across this issue. To me, just as a member of the public, as a taxpayer, I hear about a colour-coded spreadsheet that allocates funds to electorates uh, held by held by the government, uh, held by the Liberal Party, or to marginal electorates. To me, this sort of thing, you know, just completely lacks integrity when it comes to issues of pork barrelling, 
lobbying that we've talked about, political donations. It seems that the public understands that something's amiss and that these processes, they don't, they don't hold integrity and they are corrupt in one way or another, yet the government can respond to questions from the media by saying things like, it's disgraceful that you'd even ask this. What has not having a integrity commission, a federal integrity commission done to the culture and, and how can the taxpayer community, how can the Australian electorate change things when the parties themselves up until now, it seems, up until this point in the election, haven't been serious about putting a federal integrity commission on the table? The difficulty we have is that we have one set of rules for what in academic terms we call the agents and a different set of rules for the principles. So in other words, if a public servant makes a mistake, is on the take, uh, if a public servant uh, does something that he or she shouldn't do, the ICACs will come and nail them and uh, chase after them. This is in the States. We don't have anything in the Commonwealth. However, uh, when a principal, a, a minister, a politician uh, allocates the funds that legally are theirs to allocate, which they are, but maybe does so corruptly or without integrity, the only response is, as you've said, is how dare you ask the question, or if people don't like it, they can vote me out at the next election. Now, that is not a sufficient way to run a democracy. Because if things come down to that lack of integrity and the misuse of taxpayer funds in that way, there is no recourse. So uh, an integrity commission is important. The bill that the Commonwealth has put forward for the integrity commission that it is planning uh, essentially is a protection for politicians, but it'll chase after the public servants. Many of the critics of the Commonwealth's bill are saying, look, we'd rather not have one at all than have one that's going to not be allowed to chase after ministers, not be allowed uh, to have hearings, not be allowed to embark on their own uh, investigations as they see fit. And they're all the things that are in the Commonwealth bill uh, that has not been put to Parliament. So understanding what you can do is very different to being able to do something with integrity. Now, what we've had in all of these cases, the Auditor General has um, come up with the car parks uh, stuff, with the sports rorts, uh, with the water buyback, with a whole lot of things, and uh, the government has just ignored it. Mm. Marie, let's move on to moving towards a Federal Integrity Commission. What's the difference between what the government wants to pass and what the Labor Party is trying to pass, what the Greens are trying to pass and what some independents are looking to get through as well? Firstly, the independent Helen Haynes Australian Federal Integrity Commission Bill, that's been supported by uh, civil society organisations like Transparency International Australia and the Greens National Integrity Commission Bill number two. Because I think in in previous parliaments, they've they've actually uh, submitted that before. So these two alternative bills, they propose stronger independent powers. They incorporate public hearings. It's it's almost prima facie, uh, you know, uh, in our rule of law that we we do have public hearings. It's, It's 
it's it's it's it's a it's a long uh, legal a tr- legal tradition that public hearings must be open. And New South Wales ICAC has done that effectively because they use that as an anti-corruption education awareness tool. And that's actually quite important when we go to the multilateral level with the UN Convention Against Corruption that you must have some anti-corruption education awareness tool. And both bills actually have whistleblower protection commissioners. Now, with the CIC bill, uh, whistleblowing is the opposite. Um, so uh, so th- those are my concerns. Now, with the Labor proposal, I believe the uh, opposition leader has mentioned that if they do get into power, they will institute an anti-corruption commission by December. But um, I haven't seen the details of their proposal. Obviously, seeing how much civil society discontent was with the CIC bill, I do hope um, Labor does take it on board that there must be public hearings and you don't create different classes of public servants. And I hope the Labor alternative will be sufficient to appease um, the public concerns about corruption uh, on the federal level. Okay. Adam, what... If if we had a magic wand and we wanted to establish something that you know ensured full transparency and really changed this for good, changed it for the better for good, what sorts of things would we need in a national corruption or integrity commission? A good one has three main functions: uh, to investigate stuff that uh, goes wrong. Uh, to prevent, to set up a prevention program, and also an education program. And you'd want to run these three. Uh, The Commonwealth Bill only has the investigation. It has no prevention. It has no education. But then you've got to sort of stop and think and put it into its cultural context. Uh, When we look, uh, Marie mentioned the United Nations Convention Against Corruption, and there are two articles in that convention, Article 6 and Article 36, that require uh, signatories to set up an anti-corruption agency. And Australia said, we've got them in the States. But they have to set them up to ensure that they're independent, that they're well-resourced, that the people there are trained and their budget is secure. And so these are fundamental things for an anti-corruption agency. And then you've got to make some decisions about what, what do you want it to do? Do you want an anti-corruption agency to be like a guard dog and snarl and bite? Or do you want it to be like a watchdog, really to bark when stuff goes wrong? And uh, I think in the Australian context, barking is probably more appropriate than biting because we've got other institutions that do the biting. You make a finding of corruption, you investigate something, and if there's something criminal, you hand it over to the Director of Public Prosecution. But what has happened in the Commonwealth Bill, it's uh, got a level of criminality, but most of the things in our society that uh, are integrity breaches and that are seen as corruption are not criminal. Uh, They're hiring people you know after a process that may be a bit shonky. It's not criminal, but it's not right. There's a term that's used often saying, look, it's lawful, but it's awful. And uh, most anti-corruption commissions can't get to the awful. Uh, The way the bill is written, they can only get to what's not lawful. So education, prevention and investigation, all three of them are important. 
Okay, uh, Marie, just to finish, uh, governments, are we just in a point in history where governments are still grappling with this idea of corruption and a lack of integrity? I mean, I think that the government's bill that almost is an anti-anti-corruption bill, as you as you mentioned, is, is essentially just flagrantly trying to dodge the establishment of a well-produced anti-corruption and integrity commission. Is this just a point in history and is this just a part of a cycle by which we slowly, as the public demands it, as politics continues, we move towards something better? Oh, look, there, there are several different theories. I mean, if you go back to the Roman times and how corruption ultimately destroyed the, that empire. But um, I do think here in our, in our Australian political history, we are going through a difficult time. It does require political will to fix things. And um, I think we are here where how low can we go when it comes to holding uh, our public elect- publicly elected officials uh, to integrity? It, it seems almost cyclical where in one case where Australia, say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, we were, we were up there, you know, uh, people or other countries saw us as, as, as leading the way in, in whistleblowing, for example, and, and now 15 years down the track, we have gone almost the other way in terms of the institutional pendulum. So maybe it, it is a cycle of if we go back and forth, back and forth, but we do need some stable political leadership and a political culture that does emphasise integrity, that yes, we will hold integrity as core to our political culture. In, and to our political dealings. There are plenty of examples overseas that have tried to address uh, you know, instances of corruption, for example, with contracts, COVID-19 contracts last year. Thailand's National Anti-Corruption Commission did have guidance for Australia in terms of the grey forms of corruption, uh, revolving door, uh, you know, the, the, the movement between uh, the public and private sector with the appointments and the politicisation, the political donations and lobbying. France has actually set up an agency and it's called the High Authority for Transparency in Public Life. And they, uh, that agency actually does address conflicts of interest. So we do have all these overseas models and examples overseas that suggest we are dealing with the same issues that you are facing. We know about the revolving door, or in, in France they call it the pantouflage. And we do have solutions for this just to deter the self-interest of publicly elected officials during their, their tenure and to increase public trust and confidence uh, within um, the public institutions. Uh, there's so many billions and wastage of public funds because of these grey forms of corruption, and it is so inefficient and ineffective. Adam, uh, any final thoughts on what Marie was just touching on then to to finish off? Yes, uh, to put our situation into context, one of the things is to think of corruption in a society as to whether uh, it is the norm or whether it's an exception. And in some countries, it's the norm. Uh, We have taken the narrative to say that it's an exception. So when it happens, everybody says, shock, horror, it shouldn't happen. Uh, We define it in a very narrow way, and we treat corruption as a transgression, something that's gone wrong. And the greatest danger we can face is if it moves from being an isolated transgression to part of the system. And uh, by falling in our integrity stakes, uh, in our situation, we're in danger of it becoming systemic rather 
than an isolated transgression. And that's what we've got to be careful of. Okay. Uh, Look, it's been fascinating and I really appreciate both your time. Unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. But Marie and Adam, thank you so much for joining me here on Think Business Futures. Thanks for having me, Stefan, and to SER. Okay. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Think Business Futures. Thank you to my guests, Marie Delarama and Adam Graycar. You can listen and share this chat wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe to get Think Business Futures in your feed each week. And please support the show by leaving a review. I'm your host, Stefan Postuma, and I'll see you again somewhere in the world of business 